Hello and welcome to AgTech So What, brought to you by the AgThentic Group. I'm Kirsten Diprose, bringing you some bonus content. You've probably heard of the Impossible Burger. Well, we're about to hear from David Lee, who was the company's CFO and COO for more than five years. This was in the company's startup phase, back even before it had a burger. He's speaking with Sarah Nolette at the recent Future Food Asia conference. I happen to think that capitalism and consumerism are powerful, powerful uh, levers that are required to make social change. And that's really the theme of David and Sarah's fireside chat. David's now the president of App Harvest, a rapidly growing company which uses high-tech greenhouses to grow fruit and vegetables with significantly less water than field agriculture. In this conversation, Sarah and David cover impact investing in food and ag tech from VCs to SPACs. And if you haven't heard of a SPAC, it stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company, which is basically a company that doesn't really sell or produce anything, but it's used to raise capital to then buy a private company and take it public. In fact, App Harvest went public and raised $435 million through a SPAC earlier this year. Anyway, I'll leave you now with Sarah at the Future Food Asia Conference by ID Capital. David, I thought we might start with a little bit of your background. You started out in uh, a graduate job at McKinsey, or, or sorry, in the in the finance and kind of consulting world, uh, and ended up in food and ag. Like, wh where did you grow up? Did you ever think you'd end up in food? Did you always want to be in tech? Where, where did this all start? Well, that's a great question. You know, I somehow wandered my way into doing a large number of corporate turnarounds. So I found myself earlier in my career thinking that, you know, if only there was a mandate for change and being a little bit impatient with the norm of Fortune 100 business, I, I tended to be attracted to companies whose boards had already decided that it was time to, to bet big on something radically different. So my first turnaround was a large utility company here in the San Francisco Bay Area in the U.S. called PG&E Corporation, who was my only limited partner investor in a $300 million renewable energy fund. And from then, I just got a bit hooked on the idea that when there's a mandate for change, that you can have more, more impact. And so between PG&E and Del Monte and turning around a large retailer called Best Buy here, Zynga, the social mobile gaming company, and then my first startup, Impossible Foods, I tend to gravitate towards either the really large companies that are, are absolutely in need of a desperate change or the really, really small companies who are trying to create a new future. We'll see how long I can keep it up, but I tend to want to be part of things that are in the middle of a transformation. You, you know, I happen to think that Capitalism and consumerism are powerful, powerful uh, levers that are required to make social change. That if you can make investors rich and you can make the mass consumer really happy, that if you happen to be selling a product with better technology that changes the world for the better, that's the fastest path to creating change. And so that's been a big surprise, a welcome surprise for me. Take me back to that time. You were working largely in large companies, as you said, and it wasn't a time where veggie burgers or alternative protein or any of this stuff was really on anyone's mind. Was there a moment or had you learned about the impossible idea and what made you decide to go to a, not only a small company, but an idea that wasn't nearly as popular as it is now? 
Well, I'd like to tell you, you know, there was a eureka single moment, but truth is um, I began looking for something to transform food, but frankly, um, I hadn't found it. And I had been looking, you know, for probably something like 10 or 15 years before I stumbled upon Pat Brown, the founder and CEO of Impossible Foods, where I, I found a technology that wasn't just grinding up a bunch of interesting ingredients and pretending that it tasted great, which we all have been disappointed by if, if we're meat eaters like myself. And I, I saw a potential way to raise capital, create a consumer movement around a product that was just better, you know, really better because of new technology. And then once I saw that, I, I think App Harvest, where I am now as its uh, president for the last four or five months, I, I like to think that there are many now great opportunities where you can leverage, in our case, even the public equity markets to do well by doing better. But I got to tell you, you know, back in the early 2000s, it was hard going. My wife, my family, when I told them I was going to leave corporate life for a startup, you know, at the time billed as the vegan bleeding burger company, I think everyone thought I was crazy. But the good news is that there are plenty of great opportunities for, for leaders who are looking to make a change. Is there anything else you looked at that time that looking back was also a good idea or maybe a, a bad idea that you passed on? You said you spent 10 or 15 years. Any, <laughs> That's anything a good else? question, Sarah. You're, you're, well, I would, I would say this. I, I think I was a well-informed, you, you know, many, as, uh, many investors or corporate operators look at all these great opportunities, either for partnership or investment or some other form of alliance. You, you know, I was looking to bet not my capital, but my personal time. And, and because of the oddity of, having started in marketing, but been a public company CFO in tech and, and spent time running a big food business, I probably looked at many other companies, some of whom are represented in, in the audience today. The reason why I picked Impossible is very early in my career, you know, when I was 21 years old, you know, struggling in a full-time job that paid me, you know, less than 20K um, per year US, I was trained to look at, does the consumer proposition make sense? even if the consumer proposition didn't make financial sense. So I tend to look at things from a consumer lens first. And then if I think it's a winner, ask myself if there's a way to make it work from a business standpoint. And, and frankly, almost all the companies I had seen up until Impossible Foods didn't pass those tests. And so I'm grateful that I, I took a risk and, and got lucky uh, with a great team. One of the reasons many people talk about capitalism as a force for good is because of the scale that it can achieve and the speed that it can achieve it. When you joined Impossible, though, there wasn't much scale at that time, and you were coming from a context of having scale. Any stories or examples of that maybe jarring nature of going from a company that had systems and processes and people doing stuff versus, all right, we've got to roll up our sleeves and do it ourselves and, and actually build this engine? Well, you know, it's interesting. I recall my time at previous very large companies, like the ones that we had talked about, you know, Zynga or Best Buy or Del Monte, PHE. I had been in the job prior to Impossible of creating a new business because the incumbent business at a large company was failing. You know, creating within the confines of a big corporate and almost a guerrilla entrepreneur, David versus Goliath, pick your. Uh, cliche environment where we were going to create something brand new, break all the rules because frankly, the rules hadn't been serving the corporate parent well. And so truth be told, when I joined Impossible pre-revenue, you know, I think 70 or 80 scientists with a grand mission, I felt empowered to 
somehow avoid the cynicism of burned investors and disgruntled employees that I had seen at turnarounds and to have a clean sheet of paper to say, okay, now, yeah, we have to create something brand new, but we don't have to face the headwinds of proving that it's better than the incumbent business. I think the challenge that I had was when you're, you know, when you're creating omni-channel e-commerce for Best Buy, when it's been, you know, relegated to brick and mortar, traditional retail sales, there's at least an infrastructure. But when you start at a startup and you're the first uh, or one of the first senior business hires, you know, the infrastructure is you. And so, you know, I, I look back at my days of flying, you know, 250, 300,000 miles a year in the middle of coach class, selling a customer, selling an investor, creating a supply chain, you know, for a while it's on your shoulders and that, you know, when you approach being an entrepreneur later in your, in your career, I think I was, you know, in my late uh, or mid forties, I think it's a gut check, you know, and, and for me, it was more about would my family, would my wife and my kids enable me to do so much personally that I'd relied on teams to do in my former career. And, you know, I, the good news is they, they allowed me to do it. Yeah. Awesome. And it sounds like you've done the right amount of reflecting to embrace those lessons and, and think about how they can apply. Were there things about the tech world you've been in both with Best Buy and with Zynga that applied right away, sort of, oh, we've learned this lesson or otherwise things that didn't apply. Cause I think food and ag tends to say, oh, well, we're different. You know, people have to eat this or we've got to plant it and grow it. And so it's really not the same. Any reflections in that area? Well, well, I think food is different. I mean, to be clear, like when we speak at large conferences, right? When I ask who here is a, a vegan, you know, hands raise triumphantly and quickly. And when I say who here like me, you know, loves and craves meat, hands kind of go like this a little bit. And some of them are the same hands that describe themselves as plant-based. And it's because food is visceral. It's emotional. It's cultural. We define who we are, where we've been, who our families are, what we believe in by what we choose to eat. And that emotional, visceral notion of choice in consumption is different than uh, a widget in any other sector. I, I think it's also different because what we choose to eat, we, we choose multiple times a day. You know, in case of meat, I define my breakfast, lunch, and dinner by meat. Like it's such an everyday part of our lives, food, that we tend to be in denial that what we choose to eat every day as part of our cultural identity has a massive impact on the well-being of others. And, and so those things are different. Here's what I would say is not different. There is a customer cost of acquisition. You know, like my days in mobile gaming, there's a CAC, a customer acquisition cost. Even if your customer acquisition cost is high, your LTV, your lifetime value is extremely high as well and you influence through social impact and viral word of mouth, you know, the oddity of those who are in food for decades is they don't think about that CAC, LTV, consumer tech adoption circle because tech has been late in coming to the consumer proposition of making better food. In fact, we roil against it. Technology, food, Please don't blaspheme my craveable piece of fill-in-the-blank food with the idea that it was created in, in the hands of a scientist or a technologist, when the truth of the matter is technology has been part of food 
forever. We just never thought about technology to fundamentally remake food in a completely different, completely change the supply chain. Because to do so would jeopardize our jobs. You know, when I'm a six, Section 16 officer at a large public company, which I was for years, how crazy would it have been for me to go to the board and say, listen, I'm going to cannibalize our entire company because it's good for growth and the climate and the consumer. You know, thank you very much, David Lee. You know, I appreciate your boldness. You're fired, right? It's a really interesting point and one that Impossible Foods in particular is often brought up around this kind of narrative of industrialized animal agriculture or tech-focused food. These are potentially polarizing or non, not really the way we've talked about this stuff in the past. I'm curious your views on the strategy behind being so kind of different in that messaging versus maybe trying to align with more natural or we can work with the livestock industry and protein demands growing and we've got to feed the population more of a kind of cutting narrative. How, how did you think about that strategically? Well, I, I'm coming from big food, right? Being a meat eater, being a corporate citizen of large public company, I think if you look at sectors outside food, if you look at technology, you know, no, no one ever blames fill in the blank large public tech company for creating a new widget. No one ever, no, no one ever says, oh my goodness, that guy, David Lee, he's crazy to imagine that you can make better food a better way. It is normal in Fortune 100 tech companies to talk about a future created by something new. I got into food and ag in about 2013 and Monsanto had acquired the Climate Corporation in 2012 and the whole space was kicking off and venture capital was fueling in. It feels different to me now, though, than it did even only that kind of seven, eight years ago. You've been in the space a bit longer. How would you characterize some of the changes that we've seen over the last, you know, 10 plus years? And then there's a couple I want to dig in on, like SPACs and, and sustainability. Well, there's no question that being in food and being in technology is suddenly fashionable. Aside from the billions of dollars of capital, we could articulate it in a more compelling way to the audience. I just liken back to the social norms. You know, my, my wife and I have spent time here in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is known for technology. We would have these dinner parties and we'd go around, what do you do? Well, I work at really cool tech company, XYZ. And, and then he would be like, David, what do you do? Oh, I'm turning around Best Buy. Or I, you know, I decided that canned foods can be radically changed for the better. And, you know, the conversation would stop. We find ourselves where suddenly the world has realized that we got a problem and technology could be the answer in food. I, in the end, am grateful that we're fashionable. The problem is so important for us to solve. I'm happy that we will fund failures because we will fund a few successes. And, and I'm excited to see more and more momentum in the space. Yeah, those of us in the investing community have been asked many times by our investors and others, you know, where are the exits coming from, where are the returns? And so SPACs coming on the scene has been on everyone's uh, mind recently. And obviously this is something you've been part of. How, tell me about the decision to, to go down this back route. And do you think that it's consistent with what you've said before around capitalism for good? Well, you know, I am the president and, and member of the board at Eth Harvest. To be clear, I'm also on the board and the audit committee chair of a company called Benson Hill, which was recently announced to be going public through a SPAC. Much like how I defend science in food, which unfortunately I've had to defend many a time in the last five or six years, so too do I defend SPACs. 
SPACs are just one mechanism to raise capital and, and be operating as a public, you know, on the other side of a SPAC, it's no different as if you had done an IPO or a direct listing, you still have to operate as a public company. And, and to me, it's not a new phenomenon. I, I remember SPACs back in the day when I took Del Monte private. I think what's, what's new is that in the world in which we live, there's a large number of new SPACs that have been raised that are hunting for a target in less than two years it's not that different than when venture capital and growth equity had reached such a status that there were plenty of future IPOs. It's just the mechanism is different. So to me, if you view a SPAC as no different than another important mechanism to fund your future mission and growth with the kind of with the warning, the caveat that it is not a private round on the other side of it, you have to be able to live as a successful public company I think it's it's a valid, it's a very interesting way to take a company public. The realities on the other side of it, however, don't change. You still have to have all the rigor of being a public company, whether you SPAC or you do an IPO. And I think that's the concern maybe that some have, especially in food and agriculture, but also for a company that maybe isn't ready to do that or can be, you know, has to make that big jump from I've been operating in a venture funded context to now I've got reporting cycles and I've got to keep the drip feed of good news and and these things coming out. How are you seeing that shift from a cultural standpoint in these companies and from an investor standpoint in terms of understanding food and agriculture and impact and, and kind of following that narrative in this kind of new uh, but exciting space? Well, I think my philosophy personally, you, you know, from my days at really large public companies that hadn't arrived at being publicly respect or my days today, my philosophy is still the same. You have to be transparent, fact-based and operate clearly as a public company. You have to provide quarterly insight into how you did and where you're going. I think that the, the difference is for me, I've always had the ability to be part of large or small public companies that are mid to long-term focus with investors who are not in it for, you know, like the dividend that happens next quarter, they're in it for the hundred X growth promised in the next 10 years. But I think training the investor to understand what you are, that, you know, you are not, you know, in the case of App Harvest, we are not in the business of optimizing incrementally. We're in the business of creating things new, which has risk. I think that transparency is different than when I was operating in Impossible Foods and I was asked, you know, every quarter by journalists, when are you going public and how are you, what? well, I didn't have, and, and now I tell the world every quarter at App Harvest how we're doing. So that transparency is different, but the operating headset isn't different at all. Yeah, right. We're sitting at Future, Future Food Asia, obviously, and I want to hear your thoughts on the Asian opportunity. It's one that gets talked about frequently in terms of modernizing, you know, middle class and feeding the growing population and changing consumer demands. Are those the kinds of opportunities you're seeing or how are you looking at Asia? Well, I think Asia is incredibly important for anyone interested in a global food business. You know, Asia arguably is at least, if not greater than 40% of, for example, the meat market in case of the business I was in in Impossible Foods. Uh, but more importantly, Asia sets both business and consumer trends. You know, we launched in Singapore in Asia for a reason. We we have seen the benefit of Singapore announcing its 30 by 30 initiative. And, and it's not just Asia, by the way, Asia and the Middle East both are great leaders in thought leadership and technology and food in part because they need to. 
you know, food security used to be an idea and now it's a pragmatic requirement within decades of line of sight and, and great companies and great countries in Asia are, are quick to recognize it, arguably faster than many other global operations elsewhere. So, so for me, it's not only one of the largest components of a global market, it's the thought leading part of the market. This is definitely the conversation we're having in Australia. So we're an Australian agri-tech uh, VC firm, and we very much believe that agri-tech can not only help Australian producers produce more food and fiber and grow our agricultural production economy, but also that we can export these technologies. And I think that goes to App Harvest. And yes, you can grow more tomatoes and you can create jobs in Appalachia, but you can also potentially export this technology to help start new farming systems or help other countries produce their food. And so they're sort of separate but complementary opportunities, one for food and fiber and one for technology. Is that how you see it? Uh, uh, I mean, listen, I we picked the tomato because our 2.8 million square foot first facility, our, you know, our 50 acre to continue to use Western terms, but this very large first farm of 12 in the region needed to produce crop that is not ubiquitous, but certainly is common for the mass consumer. I think over time, you'll see global leaders like App Harvest and Pioneer with your region and with Asia, because as you know, for example, Australia, New Zealand are massive exporters of meat to Asia already. And so there is already a global ecosystem resident serving Asia and within Asia nascent that I think are both very attractive for us as we seek to become larger and, and global. Hmm, yeah, definitely. No shortage of opportunities. The topic here is is Agritech 2.0. And so I wanted to come back to that question here as we wrap up our chat, David. What's something that you're excited about in terms of this maybe 2.0 version of Agritech? And what are challenges you see? Are there new hills that we're going to have to climb that we haven't had to thus far? Well, I, I'm glad to hear it's 2.0. You know, back five years ago, what was it like non-existent, right? You know, food tech was a very small endeavor and it certainly wasn't in its second generation. I, I think that the hardest question that we will have to, as business leaders, as part of the ecosystem have to have to get over is how do we acknowledge that technology has always been part of food and needs to be a bigger part of it? The magnitude of the problems, I mean, again, to be pragmatic, we simply can't make enough food. You know, whether you are a meat eater or even if you are not, if you just want to create more fruits and vegetables for the globe, we simply don't have enough resources to do so, which requires new technology. And, you know, instead of debating whether GMO is a curse word or a curse set of words or, or rather the future, we should be open eyes about every technology because the, the magnitude of the problem we face is enormous. We should instead get over ourselves and start thinking about how do we actually pragmatically address the magnitude of the problem. That requires the Davids and the Goliaths to, to break bread for the incumbents and the upstarts to recognize that we all have to solve the problem. That's the 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, I think, mode of success here versus the us versus them, which is one, not frankly very valuable from an investor standpoint, and two, simply not productive given the global issue we face. Hmm. It's interesting, the framing there, I, I would say the GMO 
narrative thus far, one of the challenges has been, well, the science is sound. And so just listen to us, we're the scientists. And that kind of hasn't panned out in terms of reactions. And if you look at the regulatory landscape in places like the EU, we're getting still pushed back to that. Is there a new narrative that we need to have? And maybe that's what you're alluding to around, is it listening more or is it really just this, the problems are big, let's get on with it. Cause I, I worry a little bit about that to maybe push you that that still doesn't acknowledge the concerns, whether valid or not, of the other side? And do we run the same risk of not having listened enough to the people we're talking to, no matter how valid well, the science is? Well, I happen to, of course, have strong views on everything, but, but in this, we cannot wait for regulators to push down. You know, we would wait for Godot. I, I mean, the truth is on our side, right? For every diabetic who uses insulin, guess what? Your insulin is made through genetic modification for, for most of the cheese that's consumed in the U.S., for much of the cheese that's actually consumed in the E, which I'm sure results in me getting a bunch of tweets or texts later, but it is actually true. It's made through genetic modification. So while the truth is on our side, the truth takes too long to convince consumers. And I don't believe the regulator will catch up fast enough. The consumer, however, don't underestimate the consumer. Everyone said the Impossible Burger will appeal only to the bi-coastal elite in the U.S. And then we launched Chainwide at Castle, which has a less affluent quick service consumer than McDonald's, and then Burger King, and then, you know, we went nationwide. The consumer, if you tell them exactly what you are making and why you're making it, pretty savvy. Consumers want the truth and they're demanding it from new brands, so it'll come. And I think betting on the consumer is the fastest path to change. Last question for you, David. You, I would say, have been pretty objectively successful in the tech space and also in the food and ag space. The exciting part of this growing agri-tech 2.0 is new perspectives coming in and new talent and new views and new technologies, but people who maybe haven't worked in food and ag and maybe are younger in their career, what advice would you have for them breaking into this new agri-tech mm. 2.0 uh, and thinking about the Asian opportunity in particular? Well, I think focusing on Asia is quite smart. You know, you want to go where thought leadership and change is happening fastest and that is Asia. It's also in the Middle East. I would say the second is mentees find mentors, not vice versa. And I think acting as a generalist versus a specialist. Listen, I was never successful in finance until I became a CFO, right? I was never great at marketing until I was stuck running all of marketing for global brands. And it's because I viewed problems from a first principle standpoint, and I was lucky to have mentors who gave me a shot doing a job for the very first time that arguably I probably didn't deserve to have. But because I'd never done the jobs before in industries that were desperate for change, I might have come up with a few crazy ideas that others wouldn't have tried. And that is all due to the mentors I had. I, I think, you know, cream doesn't rise to the top. There is no such thing as a meritocracy. Cream gets pulled to the top by mentors who take a chance on them or is pushed to the top by folks who really believe in you and will follow you. So I would bet on a network and bet on mentors and go where the change is happening geographically. I mean, frankly, Sarah, like you've done, I think those, that's the best advice I guess I could offer. Awesome. David, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and thank you to Future Food Asia for having us and hosting this conversation. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. Take care. And that's it for this bonus episode of Ag Tech So What? 
Thank you to ID Capital, the organizers of the Future Food Asia Conference for giving us this audio. And of course, thank you for listening. You can find more resources from this episode on our website, agtechsowhat.com. And just a quick thank you as well to all those who filled out our recent feedback survey. We really appreciate it and we'll share some of the insights from it with you in the upcoming episodes. Bye for now.